Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today for a new episode within our Palm Beach Chronicles, our February series covering the sandy shores of this most exclusive island. Today, we have a little bit of a journey. You know, Dominic Dunn's visit to Palm Beach causes quite a bit of a stir, and there are a few ladies who drop him a line. One of these, Celia Lipton Ferris, has quite an incredible story. Interlaced with famous names and places, she's quite a legend, Celia is. With an attachment to a home filled with all the spider webs that could only happen in Palm Beach. Let's investigate. Nick does make quite an impact when he visits in the high season of early 1986 in his quest for finding the real Palm Beach. Reporting for Vanity Fair in April of 1986 from the women of Real Palm Beach, Dunn writes, When the shiny sheet reported that Helmut Newton and I were coming to Palm Beach to do an article on the community for Vanity Fair, we had a few experiences of our own. The mother of a post-deb delivered a letter to Helmut at the Breakers, imploring him to moonlight from his Vanity Fair assignment to photograph her daughter's cocktail party. This is Helmut Newton's letter. Dunn continues, The party, she wrote, will bring together the town's top young socialites in a more natural, typical setting, including our friends, the Sergeant Shrivers from Washington, D.C., Mrs. S. is Eunice Kennedy, as you know, and all five boys are here, using Mrs. Kennedy's house, of course. They attended my daughter's debut and are always included amongst her parties. The young Charles Revson, Countess Anki, too, are coming. Please do come. You'll enjoy yourself immensely, as well as seeing our Moreau's, Picasso, and Chagall. On a separate page, she added, we will render payment in American dollars, not French francs. Y'all, that's just the lead-in. Can you imagine just the dish in this handwritten note? I want you to know that the town's top young socialites, young socialites, YS, are capitalized. Naturally, there's a Kennedy drop for good measure. And sure, you know you have to see the Moreau's, the Picasso, and the Chagall. Like, I would have shown up even without the payment in French francs. The young Charles Revson mentioned here, younger in 1986 for sure, but it was the Countess Acne in parentheses that stood out. Divorce is really, really hard on socialites in Palm Beach, 
which will be coming into play this month, although this drop day is not our Dirty Divorces Day. I promise it's coming. But let's drop a line on who is this Countess Anki and why would she be in parentheses around the name the young Charles Revson? Countess Ockney is Johanna C.C. Ockney Johnson. She is the mother of Charles Revson. Johanna is the wealthy ex-wife of Revlon's founder, Charles Revson. Charles and Johanna, long divorced by 1986. Johanna, though, in 1986, will get a new husband that year, and this delicious bit is coming for all of our Patreon supporters in the Dunn Drop this week at the back of this episode. It was just too delicious not to follow up on. Today, we're focusing on a different lady that we'll call our man Nick for his visit to Palm Beach. Because Dominic Dunn is going to get notified, too, that there are people who want to talk to him. Because the shiny sheet, right, reports that Dominic Dunn is coming to town. And his visit is making quite an impact. There's one other lady who calls Dominic Dunn, which takes us into this interconnected thread of so much high society pie and all the revelations. It is Dominic Dunn that tells stories so well, but there are only a few sentences here that he will write about this next lady that calls. But there is enough to make my heart just go all aflutter in these next lines. Dunn writes, Another lady called me at the Colony Hotel. It would be a shame if you don't talk to me, she said. It would be like coming to Palm Beach without a dinner jacket. I'm sort of an interesting story. My husband invented the milk carton. He was on CBS News on Monday night as one of the great people who passed away this year. I was one of the hostesses of Palm Beach for many years. The last people I entertained were the Queen's cousins. I'm sort of an Elsa Maxwell. I have been the chairman of more balls than you can count in the last 20 years. I own the Duchess of Marlborough's house. <sighs> Would you be kind enough to call me Celia Upton Ferris? That's the name I'm known under. I was a household name at 15 in England. Right now, I'm recording my new album in Miami. Holy cat, y'all! What's the story here, Wishbone? So many spiderwebs are about to happen. Woo! Milk cartons? Owns the Duchess of Marlborough's house? Household name at 15 in England? Who is Celia Upton Ferris? Nothing is linear and everything connects, my darlings. These are the sentences that Dominic Dunn gets to investigate, to continue writing his piece. Let's make it make sense. What is Celia's story? Michael Thornton from Mail Online, writing in the Daily Mail, does a wonderful job streamlining the autobiography for Celia Lipton Ferris. I'm exerting this from her biography called My Three Lives. Again, all sources and recommended reading are available at doneanddone.com. I've taken this piece and mishmashed it up a little bit just to make it chronological for you to give you the background on this fascinating woman. Celia May Lipton was born on December the 25th, 1923 in Edinburgh, the only child of an English violinist, Sidney John Lipton. 
as Sidney Lipton, he would become one of Britain's top band leaders. Celia Mae Lipton's mother was a noted Scottish beauty. Her name was Mae Johnston Parker. When Celia was eight years old, her father formed his own band and took it to London's Grosvenor House Hotel in Park Lane, where he was to remain for 35 years. Sidney Lipton, legendary within the set in London. Every week, millions of radio listeners tuned in to hear the words, You are listening to Sidney Lipton's orchestra, broadcasting from the Silver Room at the Grosvenor House Hotel. On one occasion in the 50s, when Lipton and his orchestra played for the Queen at Buckingham Palace, Celia's mother danced with group captain Peter Townsend, the lover of Princess Margaret. Both parents attempted to veto Celia's ambitions to be her performer, but unknown to them, she auditioned for another band leader, Jack Harris. When her father heard, he said, I thought, to hell with it. If she's going to sing with a band, she'll sing with my band and I can keep an eye on her. Hmm? So in 1939, at the age of 15, Celia makes her debut at the London Palladium with her father's orchestra. At the age of 17, Celia was back at the Palladium in the review Applesauce, and four months later, she won her first raves in the West End Review, Get a Load of This, in which, dressed by the royal couturier, Norman Hartnell, she stopped the show every night singing You're In My Arms and A Million Miles Away. At the age of 20, Celia played the title role in Peter Pan. The turning point for Celia came in 1944, when superstar Jesse Matthews walked out of the leading role in the West End revival of The Quaker Girl. Celia Lipton stepped in at only 10 days' notice, and when the production reached the West End, she took 16 curtain calls, and one critic hailed her as the brightest of new stars. On the French Riviera, Celia rubbed shoulders with the young Prince Philip of Greece before his marriage. He said he'd like to give me a lift to the casino in Cannes, she said. I asked him how we were going to get there, and he said he borrowed a man's bike, and he put me on the back of it. My dress kept catching in the back of the bike. It was really a scream. I got lucky as I danced with him. He was a very good dancer. After several more leading roles on the West End stage and appearances in a number of films, Celia Lipton left Britain in 1952 to try her luck in New York. And there, after two appearances on the Broadway stage, two American television roles, and some success in cabaret, Celia met Victor Ferris. This story is simply incredible, y'all. Get a load of this. On a summer night in 1955, an attractive young British actress, finding the lift out of order in a Manhattan apartment building, arrived panting at her friend's front door on the top floor. It was like a scene straight out of the Hollywood classic, How to Marry a Millionaire. Celia remembers, I was breathing heavily and almost banged straight into a ladder standing right outside. Looking up, I saw a man with black curly hair, 
and the most expressive brooding brown eyes that seemed to momentarily flash a sign of recognition while he stood on top of the ladder. He was in the midst of repairing the skylight, and, noting his rolled-up shirt sleeves and open shirt, I thought to myself, what a good-looking plumber. (laughs) But to Celia's surprise, this good-looking plumber followed her into her friend's apartment and was introduced as Victor Ferris, a name that meant nothing to Celia Lipton, the 31-year-old West End musical star, singer, actress, and daughter of Mayfair's celebrated Grosvenor House Hotel band leader Sidney Lipton. After hesitantly accepting his offer to drive her home, Celia says, in the most awful-looking pale blue Cadillac I'd ever seen, it bore the scars, dents, and scrapes of endless battles for limited parking space on Manhattan streets. Victor will take Celia for coffee. They sat at the table facing the men's room. Celia says every time a man came out, Victor pretended he was knocking them off with a machine gun. He had me in convulsions. Our one cup of coffee seemed to last for hours with much laughter. We both found a new camaraderie. By this time, Victor Ferris was divorced and 12 years Celia's senior. He will drop Celia off at her apartment, and Celia is firmly convinced that Victor Ferris is a mafia don. She never dreamed that Victor Ferris instead owned 17 companies, was a millionaire many times over, and the inventor of things the world comes to take for granted, including the paper milk carton, the paper clip, and Ferris safety and relief valves. Victor Ferris, kind of a big deal. Celia Lipton had felt an instantaneous attraction to this, quote, macho man whose toughness coexisted with humor and sweetness, unquote. When she reeled off all of her acting credits, Victor silenced Celia, declaring that anyone can act. This statement outrages our girl Celia. All night long, she writes, my heart pounded and I thought, I'm falling for a gangster. What would my father say? All these thoughts were running through my mind when the phone rang at 3 a.m. It was Victor Mafiadon Ferris, solicitously inquiring how I was. He called me puppy. I tried to be nonchalant and said, I'm fine. There was a long pause while I wrestled with my head, which told me to slam the receiver down and never talk to this gangster again. But my heart melted at the very sound of his voice. A chastened sounding victor told me softly that he was pulling my leg. He wasn't a gangster at all. Victor wanted to prove to me that anybody can act. He certainly convinced me that he could act. Six months later, they were married. Lipton gave up her glittering stage and screen career to become his wife and, and the acknowledged queen of Palm Beach society. Victor and Celia were married at his home in Tenafly, New Jersey, with Celia saying, Even though Victor never once suggested I give up my career, I knew our marriage wouldn't work if I continued. He wanted a traditional wife, actually the kind my mother was. 
I wanted to be that for him. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. So Victor and Celia married in 1956, and they begin their life together. Initial attempts at children, kind of sad. Their first child, a girl, lives only one day. The second child they have, a son, was premature and will sadly die after a few hours. Celia suffers in all 10 miscarriages. She will write in her autobiography, My heart was broken. This was a time in my life where I felt useless and inadequate. When at last, Celia succeeds in giving birth to two daughters, Marion and Cecile, who goes by Cece for short. It turns out that Victor Ferris was not that enamored, quote unquote, and that Celia, quote, soon learned that it's the attention that a child requires that can make a husband irritable. Victor liked to be the center of attention at all times. If we were over on trashy divorces, that would sound like it's going to go someplace different, but it does not. Celia and Victor do remain married until his death. We've made it through the famous at 15 part, married the man who invented the milk carton. Now let's talk about I own the Duchess of Marlborough's home. Holy cats. Because when I think Duchess of Marlborough home, In Palm Beach, I think Casa Alva, the Manalapan island home that Consuelo Vanderbilt Balsan builds in the 1930s. Remember we talked about Consuelo in our American Girls series. Casa Alva is a little bit further south along the Atlantic than the home that we're talking about today. Casa Alva is a fascinating story all unto itself. It will be featured in a not-done-yet episode on Patreon this week. Stay tuned for that one. But the house in question today is a little bit further north, more in Palm Beach, known as the Lakeview House. This home is six bedrooms. It's a Georgian-style house with staff quarters. It contains over 12,000 feet of living space. It's kind of magnificent. To take you on a journey... Through this home, because it's not just Celia and Consuelo it connects to, whoa. Taking this next bit from New York Social Diary to delve into the history and the fascinating parts of this Lakeview house. For some, moving to Palm Beach affords the ultimate luxury, the opportunity to reinvent themselves. During the 1930s, Former department store window dresser and Cleveland spec builder, 
Clarence Mack, transformed himself into an architect of posh seasonal houses in Palm Beach's South End mansion Annapolis. Hmm? Although there are no available records even hinting Mack ever studied architecture, attended design classes, or was ever licensed as an architect, in Palm Beach, everyone regarded Clarence Mack as an architect, despite the fact a close look at his trace drawings reveals someone who could not have possibly have ever been an architect. Nonetheless, he built a portfolio of imposing look-alike pampered houses of no particular certain architectural genre that spawned what is popularly known as Palm Beach Regency. Mac's later spec subdivisions, Regents Park and Park Monceau, even served as inspirations for builder Robert Godfrey's Regency-styled row houses. Between 1914 and the 1930s, Clarence Mack built spec houses in Lakewood and Shaker Heights, Ohio, where he gave new money fortunes old moneyed mansions. Mack acted as his own designer and contractor, usually living in each of the houses before he sold them. According to contemporaneous reports, Mack relies on pattern books and illustrated architectural volumes tracing his various interpretive French and English styles from them and accessorizing facades with medallions, urns, and statues. He selected doorknobs, chandeliers, planted English-style gardens, and filled rooms with Louis-Louis and Victorian antiques. For mansion libraries, he leather-tooled book spines to match the woodwork. Of all Clarence Mack's houses, the villa at 319 El Vedado Road stands out as probably the best example of his faux hybrid style he originally described best as tropical empire. The earliest known resident, other than Clarence Mack himself, was believed to be John Wendell Anderson, a prominent Detroit attorney and a former consul general in Montreal. The Andersons appeared to have acquired the property during the 1942-1943 season. Mr. Anderson was instrumental in organizing the Ford Motor Company and held a substantial interest in the company. Sometime after Mr. Anderson died, Channing Hare, among society's most celebrated portrait artists, bought the house. Born in New York, Channing Weir Hare was a renowned Palm Beach artist, having studied with the Art Students League in New York and long associated with the prestigious Agunquit Artists Colony. For many years, he and artist Mountford Coolidge were inseparable, operating an antique business in Ogunquit. A member of the B&T and Everglades Club, Channing Hare, and his wife were separated during the length of their marriage. Mrs. Hare thought the people in Palm Beach were terrible. She liked Newport, but hated Palm Beach, said an old family friend. In Palm Beach, Hare's fatherly relationship with his adopted son and fellow artist Stephen Stevie Hopkins Hensel Hare was his most familiar relationship. Stevie fondly called Channing his Uncle Bunny. 
the unconventional couple shared San Julio, a 97-room castle on Majorca where the locals referred to Channing Hare as Your Excellency. In 1952, Channing Hare moved to a Worth Avenue apartment and sold the very formal El Vedado house to, y'all aren't even ready, Cincinnati heiress Audrey Emery, styled as Princess Anna during her 1926 marriage to Grand Duke Dmitry Pavlovich. This is the son of Grand Duke Paul Alexandrovich, whose father was Emperor Tsar Alexander III of Russia. As you may recall, Grand Duke Dmitry was somehow believed to be involved in the murder of Rasputin. Audrey Emery's later marriage to Georgian Prince Dmitry Jordais of Monte Carlo added to her titled stature. Her sister, Leela Emery, was the Duchess of Talleyrand. In January 1953, Town and Country magazine showcased the interiors of Lakeview House and how Audrey Emery had done over the house in a traditional style. Now, holy cats, Audrey Emery is going to sell the Lakeview House at 319 Elvedado Road in 1956. She's going to bail on this house before April of 1956 because Audrey and her son Paul Ilyinsky are headed across the pond to attend the wedding of Grace Kelly, soon to be the Princess of Monaco. Grace Kelly's wedding happens in April of 1956. The Lakeview house is sold by this point to Consuelo Vanderbilt Balsan. Let me just follow up with one other thing here, just because it's such a delightful spiderweb. Following the sale to Consuelo and Jacques, Audrey Emery and her son Paul Ilyinsky fly to Monte Carlo for Grace Kelly's wedding, right? Here, Audrey Emery, holy cats, will stay with Lowell and Gloria Guinness aboard their yacht. And when Audrey Emery returns to Palm Beach, she will move into 540 South Ocean Boulevard. She will die in this home in 1971, but that 540 South Ocean Boulevard house is later known as the Jimmy Buffett House in Palm Beach. He lived there for a number of years. I don't often get to talk about what an enormous parrot head I am on Dun and Dun, but I do love where it comes into play. So let's go back to 1956. Remember Consuelo Vanderbilt Balsan, the daughter of William K. and Alva Vanderbilt? Consuelo will marry the ninth Duke of Marlborough, becoming the Duchess of Marlborough and the mistress of Blenheim Castle. Her less than storybook life eventually led to a separation in 1906 and a divorce in 1920. The following year, remember Consuelo marries French industrialist and aviator Jacques Balsan. Between the world wars, Consuelo and Jacques leave Europe and move to Casa Alva on Hypoluxo Island, across from her brother's home, her brother Harold Sterling Vanderbilt's estate, called Eastover. Until Consuelo moves to Palm Beach in 1956. Why leave Casa Alva? It's been her home since the 1930s. Consuelo loves it. Remember, this is the year that Jacques dies, and Casa Alva is just too sad. 
for Consuelo at that point. Hence, Consuelo buying the Elvedado home from Audrey Emery in 1956. Casa Alva, we are going to follow up on within Patreon this week on a whole not done yet. The story of that home, its history, its spiderwebs and connections are really fascinating. But we're here today on Elvedado. So what happens? How do we get Consuelo Vanderbilt's home into the hands of Celia Lipton Ferris? Following Madame Balsan's death, Consuelo passes away in Southampton in December of 1964. Her grandson, Lord Charles Spencer Churchill, will inherit this Palm Beach home. Lord Charles Spencer Churchill sells it the following year to Alice Warfield Tyne Earthman, previously of Nashville, Tennessee. This next bit is just a delightful, y'all. I There's a story here. Again, I'm reading from New York Social Diary, but I've got to get my hands on this book. According to author Bea Holguin's Tales of Palm Beach, Alice Warfield Tyne Earthman, Mrs. Earthman, fell in love with Gerard Polk Brownlow, her brother-in-law during a European vacation. Holguin, now B. Kaiser, called it one of the greatest love stories to ever come to Palm Beach. So what happens? Alice Earthman returns to Nashville, having just chaired the Swan Ball in 1965 and files for divorce from her husband before moving to Palm Beach, where she will buy the Lakeview home from Lord Charles Spencer Churchill. In 1967, old Alice Earthman and Gerard Brownlow do marry in the drawing room at El Vedado, the Lakeview house, described at the time as a London townhouse furnished with Old South antiques in an air of nostalgic elegance. Unfortunately, here's <laughs> the next sentence, their brief marriage ended in divorce with Tyne, then marrying Cutler Godfrey in 1971. So I don't know how long that great love story to ever come to Palm Beach lasted. What's that? Mm, four years. We're here for the house, though. What happens? The following year, 1972, Lakeview House on El Vedado was leased to Kitty Miller. Kitty Miller is the daughter of Jules Bosch and widow of Broadway producer Gilbert Miller. That's just a lease, as six years later, Alice Warfield, Tyne Earthman, Brownlow Cutler, a few more last names than when we originally met Alice, then sells the home to Victor and Celia Ferris, holding one final house party before the moving trucks arrived. Declares Celia Lipton Ferris, Palm Beach is the last stronghold of elegance. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, I talk to one of them, they stay anonymous, I can't hang up, that's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh, somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today. Beautiful Anonymous. So good on Victor and Celia. They have landed into a beautiful six-story Georgian 319 El Vedado right down the street from Douglas Fairbanks Jr. Want to go back to Michael Thornton here. 
from Celia's autobiography. Although it is clear that their 29-year marriage was not always easy, her account of it and of Ferris's death in 1985, when she fought desperately to get the paramedics to their Palm Beach mansion, is the one section where her book blazes vividly into authentic literary life. Celia writes, I walked out of the hospital, got into my car, put my head on the steering wheel and sobbed. Finally, after what seemed like hours, I started the car and drove into the bleak dark night across the intercoastal bridge back to Palm Beach. That five-minute drive home seemed like 500 miles. Sadly, Victor does pass away, and again, this bit is from Celia's autobiography, My Three Lives. I do not have my copy of this book yet. It has not arrived, but I cannot wait to get my hands on it. It is in coffee table format, 344 pages with 408 total photographs, 232 of them being of Celia. According to Michael Thornton about My Three Lives, we have Celia with the Queen, with Prince Philip, with the Prince of Wales, with Princess Diana, with Prince Edward, with Rose Kennedy, with Clint Eastwood, with Bob Hope, with a decidedly icy-looking Betty Davis, of whom Ferris says, I had the distinct impression that she was wishing I wasn't with her on stage at all, and a legion of lesser luminaries who make up the candy floss world of Palm Beach society. The New York Post has described the book as an ego trip that counts. Others might describe it as an ego trip in which you count the pictures. Yet nowhere in this strange book will you find the date on which its author was born, a matter she declines to countenance, claiming that in America, if you are over 40, you are dead. The reality is that on Christmas Day, Celia Lipton Ferris was 85. This would have been in the year 2009, a fact that readers of her book will find impossible to believe after studying the hundreds of photographs in which she appears gleaming, glowing, dressed to the nines, magnificently coiffured and loaded down with jewels that look as if they might have from the collection of Marie Antoinette. I cannot wait to get my hands on that book, y'all. Ah, oh, the season of Palm Beach, I just love it. What happens to Celia Ferris after Victor passes away? Victor Ferris will leave Celia a fortune in excess of $100 million. By very shrewd investment, Celia doubles that money, making her one of the wealthiest women on the planet. In widowhood, she started to display her formidable organizing abilities. Because what she does really is incredible. Following Victor Ferris's death in 1985, Celia Ferris becomes a tireless charity fundraiser. She helped the Salvation Army, the American Red Cross, the Prince's Trust, and the Duke of Edinburgh Trust, the American Heart Association, the National Trust for Scotland, and was one of the first substantial private benefactors of AIDS research, most notably hosting Elizabeth Taylor's Red Ribbon Visit to Palm Beach. Amazing. That's not it. Celia also becomes the executive producer of the American Cinema Awards in Hollywood. She will sing before the Queen, 
at the 50th anniversary of VE Day in Hyde Park. Celia makes a brief screen comeback with Burt Reynolds and B.L. Stryker, and she will even release a series of her own self-financed nostalgic CDs. In 2003, Celia was delighted to learn that her recording of Maybe It's Because I'm a Londoner was being played to the troops in Iraq. Celia's philanthropy has become legendary. She has funded two hospital wings in her husband's name, has worked devotedly for AIDS sufferers, spearheaded a Salvation Army appeal that raised $10 million, and has given huge sums to numerous causes, sometimes with money raised from exhibitions of her own brilliantly colored Impressionist oil paintings. The American Cancer Society has named a Lifetime Achievement Award after her in honor of her 30 years of enormous charitable work. Occasionally, her judgment has failed her. Towards the end of her book, she relates, Celia does, that she was honored to receive a letter informing me that Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth had appointed me a dame. This would convey the impression that she had been created a dame of the British Empire. Not so. In 2004, Celia was named a Dame of Grace of the Most Venerable Order of the Hospital of St. John of Jerusalem, which entitles her to place the letters D. St. J. after her name. Yet now, she heads her personal notepaper, Dame Celia Lipton Ferris, and is announced by that style on all social occasions. But then, in the Neverland Kingdom of Florida's Palm Beach, such distinctions are apt to become blurred. Finishing up here, Michael Thornton writing, Is Ferris's book the story of an incredible woman who's led an inspiring life, as one of its more gushing reviews insists? Sadly, it could have been, had it not been written with one eye on the calendar and the other on her socialite neighbors. That's what we're here for. Come on. Uh, despite that, one feels this is one genuine gutsy dame who doesn't need a cardboard title from some venerable order of which most people have never even heard. Nor does she need to fib about her age or assume a status she does not possess merely to impress the rich bitches of Palm Beach. If her book proves anything at all, it is that Celia Lipton Ferris is a real-life heroine who has built her own pedestal. Kind of an amazing woman, Celia, I'm sorry, Dame Celia Lipton Ferris. A little bit like Consuelo, a little bit like Alva, we see these strong women who will build their own pedestals through our investigation in Done and Done. Y'all, that story was just too good. There were a lot of nice through lines that pulled that one together. Palm Beach, y'all, what a ride. We are only about halfway done. Walking along our sunny shores of this month of February on Done and Done. Palm Beach, y'all, so many stories. I am trying to pack them all in this month in between here on the main feed and on Patreon. There is so much bonus content over there if you're looking to add a little bit more into your investigation. $2 a month will provide every main feed episode to you ad-free and early, along with done drops, little bonuses at the end of some episodes 
We have one coming at the end of this episode about Countess Anki. Don't forget to stay tuned for that if you're a Patreon folk. Five bucks a month will get you all that early ad-free Dundrops plus all the not done yet bonus episodes too. We just dropped one over this week as an accompaniment to this week's story all about the shiny sheet and another legendary Lady of Palm Beach, its fearless publisher for many, many years, Agnes Ash, Aggie Ash. She's just incredible. It is a content-rich world over here at Done and Done, and I can't tell you how grateful I am for you. I appreciate you being part of this journey. Thank you, thank you so much for listening, for telling your friends about Done and Done, for your kind emails, for your kind reviews, for your support on Patreon. We will be back next week with more Chronicles from Palm Beach. Until we meet again then, darlings, stay curious. Keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.